Hello, I'm your host, Ari Kimmelfeld, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Schachter. And this is The Activist Podcast, a podcast about the people and the process of shareholder activism. We dive deep into the world of shareholder activism, exploring case studies to uncover the secrets behind successful campaigns, effective communication strategies, and legal frameworks involved. All opinions expressed by myself and Mark are solely our own opinions, and they do not reflect the opinion of the podcast and should not be relied upon as the basis of investment decisions. We also may maintain positions in the securities discussed on the podcast. You said you want to buy the largest oil company in the world? That's preposterous. What the hell do you know about the oil business? Whatever Fogg was attempting to accomplish, he could never have anticipated Icon's response. You don't understand, Joe. I'm not here for an interview. Kingsley was equally irreverent. Morgan Stanley had sent us this questionnaire, he recalled. Oh, it must have been two or three pages of questions. Will you be going to move the company to Bartlesville? What's your background in the oil business? When we met with him, they said they wanted to know if we were good applicants. That's when I said, cash. We have cash. That's all we need to be good applicants. We'll hire people who know about the oil business. Essentially, this quote was from Icon's bid of Phillips Petroleum. Uh, we'll get into that probably in a different podcast, but this just gives you a flavor of how Icon rolls. He has his own ideas of what he wants. He doesn't listen to his attorneys or what other people are doing or what bankers are doing. He has an agenda. He understands how to create shareholder value, and he's pretty agnostic to whatever industry he's involved in. And today's podcast, we'll talk about Tappin, which is an appliance company, and this was one of Icon's early investments. The thesis around being an engaged shareholder is that you are the catalyst, right? If, if you're just looking for value in a stock, well, you might find that value, be it in real estate um, or some other proposition in the company, but it might take a while for that value to be recognized. Uh, but, but as an activist, as an engaged shareholder, you are creating that value by calling up management or by calling up a buyer uh, or by selling off a part of that business that might not be essential to it. Um, and that's going to be reflected in the stock price pretty quickly. So it's a little bit of a different approach, or I would say an added approach to looking for value in cheap stocks. Activists and value investors should be best friends. Yeah. It's kind of like the step two. It's like, okay, step one, find a valuable investment that's selling below that value. And then step two is now do something about it so that the value in that company is actually appreciated by the market and hence its stock price increases. Right. So let's look at Carl Icahn's Why Tappen. Yeah. So he found this company, their appliance manufacturer. Before this, he was an options broker. Um, he actually had an interesting way into the options business. The way he got um, customers to buy and sell options through him was that he released a weekly options report. Think about it as a blog or a podcast uh, to get some attention. And he really delivered value. He showed people what options should be priced at. And at the time, I think there were only two or three companies um, that gave uh, whatever transparency they, they gave, which wasn't too transparent at all. And so people didn't really know what options should be priced at. And there was uh, a lot of margin uh, to be taken. Uh, you know, the, the margin that these companies had was his opportunity. And that's what he was writing about in his options report. Um, and so then he kind of got into one company 
called Baird and Warner, uh, which we won't focus on in this podcast, but basically he liquidated a REIT and took the cash from that and started um, this activist investment approach. Yes, super, super short. Baird and Warner was trading for less than its net asset value and no, no one was doing anything other than that. And to everyone else, it was just a cheap value play, you know, waiting for value to be recognized. He came in there and that was like his first real activist position, liquidating it and capturing the difference between what it was trading for and what it could get. Yeah. So before we get into Tappan specifically, I think it's important to kind of talk about Icon's philosophy about corporate management, which can apply to Tappan. It applies to some of the other companies that he goes after in the future. And he keeps repeating this line, um, this uh, reverse Darwinism uh, approach. And this is a quote from his book, uh, from a book about him called King Icon. Uh, so you have to understand how the system is structured. The guy who gets to the top of the big corporation is, with notable exceptions, a political animal. He's a survivor. He knows how to watch his back. That means hiring a number two guy that's not as smart as him. That works for the CEO because he's never threatened by his second in command. But think what that does to our corporate establishment. If the number two guy is always a little worse than the number one guy, sooner or later, you're going to have a country run by a bunch of morons. In American business, we have a reverse Darwinism that provides for the survival of the unfittest. And this quote, I think, is super uh, interesting. You don't really hear it said a lot. Um, but if you think about even the Fortune 500, right, the top 500 businesses in the U.S., um, these are the top in market cap in how much business they generate, um, but they might not be the top in management. And I think there's this quote that applies here by uh, Munger is we like to buy businesses that can be run by idiots, you know, and sometimes these businesses are run by idiots. And so they're not necessarily generating the most shareholder value. So if that's true for the Fortune 500 businesses, the top 500 businesses in the U.S., um, well, it's definitely going to be true for some of the worst businesses um, in micro cap, nano cap, even some of the small cap uh, businesses are going to find management that is not necessarily uh, qualified or, you know, looking out for the shareholder uh, at all times. They're not following their fiduciary duty to shareholders. And instead, they're kind of using the company as a piggy bank, you know, paying their compensation, uh, paying for their benefits, their jets. Uh, etc. And so part of Icon's approach is always focusing on compensation. And I think this is a good segue into Tappan because one of the things Icon was harping on with Tappan was how much management was actually being compensated. During the past five years, Tappan under its current management has lost $3.3 million on sales of $1.3 billion. And during the same period, WR Tappan and DC Blasius which is Tappan's chairman of the board and president, received salaries and bonuses totaling $1.213 million. So not only is the company losing money, but the chairman and the president earned about close to half the losses just in their own comp. So it's definitely something that to a guy like Carl, who's looking at the world and management as this survival of the unfittest, that's definitely something to start looking at and digging deeper. Management is earning these fat salaries and shareholders are losing money. Yeah, and I, I guess this kind of uh, refers back to the, the thing that Icon always says, which is like you have to focus on who's actually owning the, the company, right? I think in this situation, management owned just like between 2 and like 5% of the company. 
So they didn't even own the stock in this case, and they're making money while shareholders are losing money. So uh, who owns the company and who's working for the owners? And in this case, obviously, shareholders own the company and management is just working. But I guess throughout, you know, throughout their their careers, they've kind of gotten paid more and more and they kind of lose that sense that they're working for someone else when they get to the top of a company. Shareholders, you have thousands of them. There's one CEO. So how do you figure out some proportional number that makes sense? Hey, this is what the owners of the business get. This is what the operator who's running the business get. And when a CEO is taking 50%, that's 50% of shareholders just think of it as they're gone. Yeah, and, and then it's on one top thing of that, you're like talking about a business not of net income. This is 50% right. of a loss. So shareholders are losing money. and right. you know, Shareholders would have lost management. less had there been no comp, for, exactly. at, at least ridiculous comp. Yeah. And, and there are many companies today that are the same. Yep. Well, I guess let, let's think about it the other way. So say you're, you're management, right? What is, what is management going to say back to Mr. Icon? Look at our said, peers. Management exactly. will always say, look at our peers. Yeah. They'll bring in a fancy compensation consultant, pay them 50 grand. At least today, they could be more shareholder money. Yeah, two hundred grand even of getting an assessment, which is basically just a comparable analysis of what other management teams are making at other companies, um, and they're going to justify how much they should be making. Uh, and this kind of reminds me of that line from Todd Combe uh, when he was trying to analyze capex, and he asked the management team, "So, what part of this is maintenance capex? What part of this is growth capex?" And uh, the management was trying to say that. A lot of it is growth capex, you know, leaning towards the optimistic side. But there's no growth. Uh, Todd is like, well, well, there's no growth. So why is all this growth capex being spent? So this is kind of the same thing where management is saying, you know, we're being compensated relative to our peers. But buddy, your peers are doing much better than you or they're in a different Correct. league. You're not performing you know, like your peers, peers are actually worth like $500 million more than you. Uh, they're not the same company. Like who's putting And, and then the complete flip side to that is, and the flip side to that is, and if your peers are similar to you and you're both not performing someone else doing the wrong thing or something that's not for shareholders for us as owners then it's not an excuse you're losing money paying yourself these fat salaries and blaming it what because someone else is doing it too that's not a reason so now that w we see this going on with with management um they also had We're, some poor operating performance right so they it, have it doesn't just end with compensation tapping had a whole list of problems to start it might you might have started with compensation but the list was long yeah and and I guess that's kind of what made it a good target for Icon because he could have pointed his finger at all these different things and said, hey, shareholders, wake up. Management is being overpaid. They're operating poorly, Underperforming. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so so it, was, it was a poor acquisition that was made within Tappan a couple of years back with heating and cooling. Um, and there was also a cyclical business that was tied to the housing market. So at this time, I think it was in 1978, when the housing market was kind of slow and, you know, people weren't getting as many new appliances. Um, so it was, it was at, at the bottom of the cycle. And as I like to say, at the bottom of the cycle, things uh, never look so expensive. And at the top of the cycle, so, some things never, never look so, look so cheap. cheap. Right. So, so that, was, that was the case here. Um, and so he was able to, to make his, his case. Right. So, so if you just know. if you just look at the operating, let's let's look at the operating for a second. So you have horrendous compensation, 
poor operating metrics, okay, and then you have the business happens to be out of time because of its relationship to the housing market, it's at a time where cheaper than it should be. Yep. I'm, I'm, we're trying to make the case that with point B, that it's a value investors play also. Like that's when a value guy gets in because exactly. you're getting into a business. And we'll get we understand the, the, the activist's job is to be able to increase the value, be the catalyst for change, yada, yada. But just from a, from a pure value play, this is a great time to get into this business. Exactly. So so the activist part is, is only playing on top of the value part like you can't right. be an activist in an overpriced company you'll get slaughtered correct and unless your intention is you know for charitable causes like herbal or, or if you're shorting it there <laughs> yeah. have been activists who come who have come to short and there are yeah, activists we'll who came to, to short that. and went home we'll get to that but this is kind of just planting the seeds for for activism sure. at least for icon um okay so the other point uh that icon made was regarding the board uh, so just to quote the book again, in most cases, boards don't rock the boat either. They just come to get their paychecks. Uh, they don't rock the boat because they're members of each other's boards and each other's compensations committees. So everyone <laughs> is watching out for everyone else. Uh, Anti-Darwinist right there. Exactly. Survival so the, of the, the reason The reason they survive is because they're all failures in, in one way or another, and they got to support each other's failures. Otherwise, they'd all be kicked out of each other's boards and... You know, they can't pay their memberships for their clubs or whatever it is. So to stay on the board, they all kind of just uh, nod and, and listen to, to management. And we understand that Icon's framing that as a narrative, but it exists. It's a reality. Yeah, yeah. And I think we, we can't go into Tappan without taking a look at the valuation here. So um, at the time, and we'll, we'll get into some of the timelines uh, a little later, but at the time that Icon made his first investment in Tappan. The book value was $20 per share, and he was buying it for like eight fifty. dollars um, There was also a really good comp. 50% discount at a minimum. Right, right. So he has, he has a good margin of safety. Um, and he had, a, he had a good benchmark for that, that $20 was something that was realistic because there was another company out there called Magic Chef, and they did similar things to what Tappan did, but Wall Street liked them a lot more, and, and they were selling um, to much closer to book value, if not more than book value. And so Icon saw that as like a benchmark of where Tappan could be, um, but because of management or because some of the other, other market forces uh, wasn't being recognized. So he saw that as, as a benchmark, and uh, the valuation here was kind of a margin of safety. So even if his catalyst didn't work, uh, at least there was something in the company that he would be able to sell if he did uh, decide to take over the company. Magic Chef Let's, was hot. Tappan was not. Yep. Yep. Let's look at the strategy. So, so now, so, so we have a case. We have something that seems ripe for an activist investor. I, I, we have something that seems ripe for a value investor. Now, Icon as an activist, what does he do? What's the strategy here? How do yeah. you go about realizing the value? How do you become a catalyst for change? We recognize the value. We see what's going on. How do we act on that? Yeah, so this is kind of how the story plays out. Uh, and we'll kind of keep referencing the timeline just so we know when things happened. Um, but basically the first batch of stock that Icon buys is January 5th, 1978, right? So New Year's is over. And sounds like this was 
Carl's uh, New Year's resolution. So Icon buys 10 to 15,000 shares of Tappan. Um, and then just about a month later, February 22nd, um, he buys another 70,000. So now he owns between 80 and 85,000. Um, and at this point is the first time that he ever mentions uh, takeover uh, target to Tappan's management. So he calls up uh, the management. And in that call, he was very polite. You know, he was just saying that he was another shareholder and he wants to get to know management. Um, he sees value in the company and he might buy more shares in, in the future. Um, second and third call, uh, management asked if a takeover is likely uh, because he just kept on buying more shares. All of February, Icon's just going about buying shares. Uh, and he specifically said no, right? So he had no intentions of taking over the company. Um, but eventually, Tappan's president asked point blank if a takeover was going to be part of Icon's strategy. And they said absolutely not, that they're not any kind of business of taking over companies and they don't want to be. That was a quote from King Icon of uh, Blasius putting it in the meeting notes of the call um, of what Icon Making sure King... to keep it for a reference. Exactly. Although, exactly. although that was then and he could have surely changed his mind the next day. Yeah. Um, so one thing that, that Icon always has on his mind, uh, and this applies to, to Tappan, uh, which he says when there's poor operating performance, and I quote, if I personally owned a business with these operating results, which had substantial net worth, I would certainly seek to sell that business. I believe this is the same logic that should apply in the case of Tappan. So this is what he wrote to, to shareholders and trying to convince them to, to eventually vote him in as a director. Uh, but I think this was his logic uh, in pursuing Tappan in that they had poor operating performance and that his goal was eventually to sell that company. And I, I think even if he denies it to management over the throughout the different calls that they have and conversations over lunch, um, he kind of always had it in the back of his mind that he could sell this company. And it took a few years for that to happen. But I think that's that was his agenda, at least as a as a investment thesis. I, I think the thesis was fairly simple. He saw a great asset being utilized the wrong way and in the right hands, that's a valuable asset and someone's willing to pay the right price for it. And what it was trading at, he knew he could get for a lot more. I think it was yeah. really simple. So, right, so Icon sees this cheap company. He speaks to management. He's already starting to buy shares. Um, so what does he do about it, right? So how is, how is he a catalyst? So in the beginning, he thought it would be a lot easier than it ended up being. But what he did was uh, he hosted an, an early May luncheon uh, in New York with President Blasius and uh, VP William Block. And he also invited Fred Sullivan, who at the time was chairman of conglomerate Walter Kitty & Co. Um, and Fred bought a 20% stake in Icon & Co., which is basically the vehicle that Icon was using to purchase stock in Tappan. Um, so Walter Kitty also owned a Farberware division, um, and which made uh, cooking products. And so Icon saw that Fred Sullivan is not just an investor of his, but can also be a potential suitor for a takeover of Tappan. 
and give him a return on his investment. Um, so this happens May 9th, 1978, uh, about six months after Icon buys his first few shares. And so Blasius arrives in New York and Icon tells him for the first time, oh, by the way, Fred Sullivan's going to be joining us uh, for lunch. Um, and he's also a large shareholder and he's interested in talking to him. So right away, Blasius gets cold feet um, and he thought that some kind of takeover was going on. Uh, but Sullivan at lunch was like, no, no, no worries. We don't do any hostile takeovers. Um, and so at the end of the meeting, Icon was like, I'm going to buy more shares. Because <laughs> he realized <laughs> that, you know, this this buyout isn't going to happen right now. But he, he saw that potentially something could happen. Um, and so and the stock in, was still cheap. Exactly. It was still selling for less than $10 a share. And again, the book value was $20. Um, so I think Blasius wrote in his meeting notes, uh, he said he repeated that he was not in an attempt to accomplish or the beginning of a buyout and that they felt the stock was undervalued at approximately $8 and a good growth potential. He also indicated that he should not be worried if a 13 D were filed, um, as if, as it would not be intended as the beginning of a takeover attempt, right? So Icon keeps up this narrative of we're just investors. We like your stock. Maybe it would be nice for you guys to sell to Fred Sullivan, uh, but it's okay. I like the stock. I'm going to keep buying it. And and, I, and at the same time, he's also foreshadowing everything that he's actually doing. So as when it occurs, you're not taking a, a, a back and like, oh, he just filed a 13D. We got to get active over here. No, yeah, he's saying. Like, yeah, he he's told us. Like, he told us he's going to file a 13D. Don't worry about it. Yeah, he's like, don't worry if a 13D is filed. I might buy shares. I might file a 13D, but then I might not have to file a 13D because I'm not going to buy any more shares. Um, you know, so so he's like very yeah, every option, every single option is open. Every option exactly. is open. Every option is open, open, but at the same time, you feel like relaxed that that nothing is actually happening. But really, he can do anything. Like the chessboard right. is is uh, you know free to play. So soon after the meeting. Uh, that Icon had with Sullivan and uh, Blasius. So Icon started getting back to looking for a buyer. So Icon was making his statement. He was saying, this company is cheap, has great value, and anyone who gets in is getting a great deal. And he went out there. He started shopping this deal. Icon put this deal on the street. And then in a call to Blasius on May 26, he opened the possibility of a Japanese connection, saying that he had learned from his sources that certain Japanese producers of microwave ovens we're exploring the purchase of a range manufacturer in order to broaden their product line. This was that the Japanese company can add clout to their marketing capabilities, which you wouldn't necessarily think is a suitor, but is a suitor. And, and of course, what happens right away, you know, being that they're an entrenched board and management, Blasius says right away, oh, Japanese companies wouldn't be interested, you know, w which again, just short-circuited Icon's attempt. And now Icon's back to square one looking for a buyer. And then he continues to do that. Throughout the summer and early fall of 78, Icon continued to shop the company. He was looking for a buyer. So he started going back to his roots. He started working the phones, meeting with clients, employing all of his market-making skills that he developed in the options business. And then on November 3rd, Icon starts to get back into kicking it up a notch hotter. And he he goes out there and buys another 40,000 shares. So yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because when we're thinking about this, um, you know, on one, on one side of it, Icon is increasing his investment, right? So 
it sounds like his conviction is also going up in the company and that he can sell the company or maybe not. Or maybe he just thinks that even if he can't sell the company, it's still selling so cheap. So he has this opportunity to keep buying shares. So we see his, his conviction. He's like kind of doubling down or tripling down on the company. Um, but at the same time, from management's perspective, they're losing power with every single share that Icon buys. Right. Every single share means that he has another vote and every vote means that they're one step out of their office. Um, and as we know, Icon doesn't really care whether he knows the business or not. He can always hire someone. And if he doesn't like management, he's going to replace them. And they know that. So him buying shares is kind of the leverage that he has against management. Um, and so like in some of the calls that he has with Tappan management, at the end of the call, he's always trying to put in the fact that he's going to buy more shares, meaning he's going to get more leverage against management by getting more votes, more shares, and more power. And it's interesting that you said that. You know, it, it's true. Icon doesn't really care whether he knows the business or not. But the reality is also at the same time, Icon's a nuts and bolts guy. He comes in, once he's in the business and he starts digging in there, his due diligence is nuts and bolts. He focuses on unit economics. That's how he's able to do the things he's done. I mean, wiping away entire divisions without it having any effect on the operating business. That's a guy who knows the nuts and bolts. Also, yeah. it, it, it speaks loudly to the environment that exists that you have that in the first place. It's, it, 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 his survival of the unfittest is a reality, which is what I was saying before. Yeah, and I think, you know, none of this would happen. Like, Icon is a very risk-averse guy, and he wouldn't just be, like, buying shares to gain power. Uh, I think in the book somewhere there was this line of, um, if you're not acting from a position of power, then better not act at all. So he does care about the power. Um, but at the same time, first and foremost, he's looking at value. And if he's able to get a good discount on a good company that's underperforming because of management, then he'll take that step and try to increase his leverage and gain power. Uh, but he wouldn't do that if his principal was at risk. And so in this case, uh, if his campaign works, he's able to sell the company. He has huge upside, right? Um, and the downside is pretty little because the the book value is kind of there and it's currently selling at 50% of book value. So I think that's that's kind of his investment thesis. And that's why he has so much conviction in just you know buying up these shares month after month. Okay, so getting back into it. So Icon goes, buys these additional shares and Spiel comes out again, you know? Management's all concerned. What's he doing? What's happening next? You know, his position just keeps on increasing. And then same spiel. I don't know what I'm going to do. I might buy the company, might sell the company, might not do anything at all, might not. Maybe I'm just passive. I'm not, I, I don't know myself what I'm doing, you know? And that, that spiel puts Blasius, you know, off put. Here's another quote from the book, you know, regarding Icon's increased purchases of the stock. Blasius noted, in a response to a direct question, he said that he was buying for Carl Icon, not for anybody else. He said, you can relax and enjoy your weekend. It is not a buyout or a tender offer, but to make certain Blasius didn't relax too much, Icon added in that he would likely buy more Tappan stock and would, of course, then have to file under a 13D. Right, but this whole time he's not saying that he will for sure buy more stock, and 
that he will for sure file 13D, right? He's saying, if I buy more stock, I may buy more stock, I may not, but if I file, if I buy more stock, I'll have to file. Uh, but I may not buy and I may not file. I also think it's super important to note here, this is literally icons, in some cases, the first, and in some respects, the second time that he's ever done anything. So today, if Icon Go starts buying shares, everybody knows what's happening. But in this case, this guy's really confused. I mean, he has no idea. It's not like Carl has a motto. There's no track record to, to match him up against. Yeah. So, right. So he keeps management confused. And I think this next step that he does is along the same lines. He's still confusing management, uh, but he's also opening up his options, right? He's seeing that, you know, the environment is pretty tough. It's 1978. He might not be able to sell the company. So uh, he, he asked management a different question. He asked a number of questions regarding the possibility of the officers buying out the company. He said, you guys could become millionaires very quickly, Blasius recalled. Why don't you borrow money on the assets and buy out the company? Um, right? So, so Icon is kind of thinking of a few different possibilities for exits, either selling the company to a white knight or maybe management can borrow the money on some of the real estate that they have uh, and do a management-led buyout um, at the same time buying out Icon shares. Uh, but because now they'd be so leveraged, management would uh, pay themselves however much they wanted um, as long as it was backed by, by the firm's assets. He calls them up just because like the Wall Street Journal and like their attorneys probably called them and said, hey, by the way, Icon is about to file 13D. He just bought, you know, he crossed the 5% threshold. Um, so he called them up himself to say, yeah, you know, forget what your attorneys are telling you. I'm the good guy. I'm going to tell in your ear, this, this company is a good investment. You guys are managing this company that I like. And it's a cheap buy. And that's why I'm buying it. Like, you know, don't worry about it. Tactically ambiguous. Carl Icahn. So that was November 27th. And now we're getting into the last few days of 1978. We're in December. And Icon purchases another 44,000 shares. Right. So he and he's buys, and he's buying these shares still at eight and like five eighths. Yeah, yeah. He's less than fifty percent of book value, basically. So after he buys these shares, a lot of rumors start to circulate on whether or not Icon is going to try to take over the company. That's when Icon steps back into gear, picks up the phone, calls management, and says, "Hey, by the way, if prices go up, I might as well just sell my shares. Right? I'm in it for a profit. I'm no Robin Hood." <laughs> If, if I'm making money and if people think I'm going to take over the company, then why would I take over the company? It's kind of like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, people think you're going to take it over. Prices go up. Well, he made money, whether he took it over or not. He, he's, also, he's also starting to provide them with enough rope to hang themselves by giving them his out. Let, let's just understand the board for a second. They hate this guy. This guy's been a nuisance. They're looking to get rid of him. They just don't know how because they don't know how to unlock the value themselves. If they did, Icon wouldn't be here. Yeah. So, so he's telling point, them, oh, by the way, if it goes up a little bit, I'm gone. You know, easy out. Yeah. And that's kind of prompting them also to maybe do a buyout or, you know, not, not even a full buyout, but if they buy back some shares, let's say they have... Uh, you know, a few million bucks that they could use to buy back shares, the stock would go up and maybe that's one way to, to get rid of Icon. So he's, he's kind of like tempting them to, to do something like that. Uh, but that doesn't end up uh, going anywhere. And so on November 20th, in the course of a phone conversation, 
Icon asked Blasius if he would consider adding a 10th member to the board. And not surprisingly, Blasius was not so happy about it uh, because Icon was nominating himself. And so if it wasn't going to work the natural way, Icon was going to push his way onto the board. Um, and so Blasius explained that our board was limited to nine members and with only two of them being represented by management uh, and that the number had been fixed by the board either last year or the year before. Blasius says, I also gave him an outline of our board strength and that I felt I was represented and that I really believe that we have an efficient board match, independent, very capable and doing a good job and that I personally saw no reason to add a 10th board member. And Icon hears this and he doesn't really care, right? He sees that the board is very entrenched and that Blasius basically just gave him a knee-jerk reaction to reject him. And he didn't really understand. Like, he was confused, right? He's about like 40 years old. He spent a long time in the options business. So he sees himself as a pretty savvy financier. Uh, and he asks himself, why wouldn't this, like business that's failing want to add a savvy financier to their board um, especially if that financier is not all talk but he owns over five percent of the company and that's when icon kind of steps it up gets back into full gear uh, and starts pushing for his board seat um, and then there's this quote from the book that i really like um, that kind of shows us icon's perspective on this uh, and he says as much as they deny it, CEOs and their boards of directors come to view the companies they run as their own. Should an outsider threaten their prerogatives, they will do everything in their power to repel him. This insider versus outsider mindset violates both the spirit of the corporate democracy and the fiduciary duty that the boards owe to their shareholders. Uh, and this, infu this kind of mindset that Icon has infuriates him even more. You know, that there really isn't a good reason why they wouldn't let him on the board. And the people that are on the board currently don't actually deserve to be there, unlike him, who actually owns 5% of the company. So his incentives are clearly aligned with shareholders, and theirs are not. Okay, so Icon got all these shares. And not only, not only does he have all the shares, he's been making moves. He tried to bring in Fred Sullivan early on. He made his phone calls. He tried to work the Japanese. He's trying to get the company sold. And the board's not online with this. So the board starts to work up a defense. And what do they come up with? Issue more equity in a preferred share series and then use the capital, buy another company, cloud all the financials, mix everything up, make it one big mess. So Icon figures he's he got to start moving quick. And so by issuing this preferred shares and acquiring another company, Tappan doesn't become as likely of a a target for another company, for a strategic, a white knight to acquire. And so now Icon is going to basically try to do everything he can to stop them from issuing these shares and from possibly being in a situation where they have the opportunity to acquire another company. And so the quote from the book from Kingsley, uh, who's his lead numbers crunching analyst, is we first learned of the serially preferred tactic through a proxy statement that came in the mail, and Kingsley said, as soon as I saw it, I said, if we're going to do something, Carl, we better do it now. And so this is when Icon kind of moves into a little bit of a higher gear, a little bit more aggressive. Um, and in his response, he requested a list of shareholders, which is something that shareholders are entitled 
two from management. Um, and he saw that the vote for the new preferred was April 23rd. Uh, and I think March 23rd was when they uh, announced they were going to issue this, the preferred shares. So he had about a month to convince shareholders to vote against the company issuing new shares. Um, and basically, he goes about it um, by trying to convince management, um, but then also shareholders. So, so once Icon found out about this preferred, um, his next go to action was to request the list of shareholders, uh, since he had about a month until April 23rd, until the shareholder meeting to convince shareholders that this issuance was basically a bad idea for shareholders. Um, and at first tap and management tried to convince icon that the preferred was not a big deal and it wasn't a threat to his interests on the grounds that uh, they had no intent to use the new security to block a tender offer um, if Carl were were to do something. Um, but when he heard that, his Queen's radar kind of went on high alert. Whenever he hears that an adversary is trying to protect his interest, he's like, well, I don't believe you. And his response is, if you killed 30 people, you might say it's not your intent to do that, but the result is still the same. So when they told him that it wasn't their intent to use this new security to block his tender offer, he was like, yeah, I don't care what you guys say. Like that's at the end of the day, you're able to use this security to block any tender offer, not just for me, but from a poten potential acquirer um, that could you know, lead to a big loss for me or uh, potentially block a, a great return. Um, so he, he kind of stepped in there and kind of said, you know, you might have not intended to kill people, but if, if that's the result, it doesn't matter. Um, so that Icon natural always... disposition from Icon is, is what led to a remarkably successful career. Yeah, he, he never really believes the, the companies or the management or, in this case, an adversary um, that, that he's fighting. I think there, were another, there was another example where um, there were attorneys on the other side and they were kind of trying to give him advice on what to do. And he's like, you have your attorneys, I have my attorneys, I think I'm going to listen to mine. <laughs> That's like his attitude, like don't trust anyone. And even in some cases, he doesn't even trust his own attorneys. He kind of does what he wants and then hands it to the attorneys to write it up. Uh, it's kind of the icon way. So that was March 23rd, right? Is when Icon first finds out about this uh, possible stock issuance. And by March 30th, Icon gives Blasius a call and basically threatens a proxy fight. Um, and Blasius wrote in, uh, in a memo regarding the March 30th conversation that relating to the board seat matter, he said he thought he had already gone too far and would probably want to continue. Said he felt someone with the number of shares that he controlled should be represented on the board and thought he could be helpful to us. Said he couldn't understand why he was not entitled to a board seat and hoped that, he would not, that we would not fight the issue. Said that he had enough shares to win one or two seats in general. I tried to discourage a proxy fight, but do not believe I was successful. So Blasi is kind of already foresees where this is heading. He understands that Icon really wants a seat on the board, maybe two. Uh, he also understands that, he, that Icon has the shares to do that. And um, he's kind of starting to take him seriously. Um, so this is March 30th, and Icon has until April 23rd of 1979, which is when the shareholder meeting is, to convince shareholders 
that this equity issuance is not in their best intentions. And just like that, on April 11th, Icon writes a letter to all shareholders. And he begins his letter, I'm writing this letter to ask you to elect me to the board of directors at the annual meeting of shareholders on April 23rd, 1979. As the largest shareholder of Tappan, I would like to see our company acquired or tendered for a price close to its December 31st, 1978 book value of $20.18. Effectively, Icon is doing a couple of things there. He's foreshadowing a price that shareholders can see, stick to, and look at him as the catalyst to bring that price about. I think the point here is that when Icon is communicating to shareholders, it's almost like you know he's talking to his own teammates. Nice. This is what the game plan is. This is what they're trying to do. And this is how we need to group together to basically cross the finish line first. Um, and in this case, he's explaining why the, sh the incentives are aligned. And later he'll go into more detail, but basically he's saying here, I own a lot of stock, you probably own some stock, and right now the share is around $10, the book value is around $20, and if I get on the board, what I'm gonna do is try to sell this company for $20. So you're incentivized to put me on the board and I'm incentivized to get on the board, because it's our money at stake and management is opposing us. So it's us versus them. And he's grouping together the shareholders in the us. So Icon focuses his letter by pointing out uh, management's errors and management failures, noting poor performance and obviously the high compensation that's been going on. So how does Icon address his partners, the other shareholders? It's simple. Icon gets out there and in this letter that he writes to shareholders, starts noting point by point, explaining poor performance and severe management failures. So he says, during the past five years, TAPN, under its current management, has lost 3.3 million on sales of 1.3 billion. And during the same period, WR Tappan and DC Blasius, Tappan's chairman of the board and president, respectively, received salaries and bonuses totaling 1.213 million. So he also included a chart about performance in 1974, and it clearly showed that the company had lost more than $7 million. Yet Dick Tappan and Blasius collected salaries and bonuses. So it's not just based on, we're not just talking about salaries here. They made bonuses in that year on a loss of $7 million of about 84000 132000 respectively. So when Icon laid these numbers out, and this is going again to his partners, the other shareholders, Icon then delivered the real clincher. If I personally owned the business with these operating results, which had substantial net worth, I would certainly seek to sell that business. I believe the same logic should apply in the case of Tappan. What's he effectively saying? It's time to sell. And this goes back to where he foreshadowed the price that they could sell it for. So he lays out management, walks his partners, his fellow shareholders through the bad performance, through shareholder value destruction, and then he explains that it's time to sell the company. And of course, classic icon style, he throws in a little fear tactic where he tells the shareholders that management might issue shares in the future and that he would terminate such proposals in the embryonic stages, you know, letting shareholders think this could get so much worse. Icon was a master at communicating, not just with management, not just with his spiel and his dances, but he also had a way of getting to the shareholders. And you can see it in this quote from the letter 
letter where icons like, as a director of Tappan, my first act will be to recommend that we retain an investment banking firm unaffiliated with me to solicit proposals from third parties to acquire our company at a price near its book value, which at December 31st, 1978 was $20.18. What this does to a shareholder who's been crushed by the stock, you know, a shareholder owning this has, has seen nothing but losses. Now what he sees is not only the potential for gain and improvement, but to double his position. Icon was very blunt, you know, describing that he's here, he's going to push for a sale of the company, and there was nothing to hide about that. As he says, although management has stated to me that they do not desire the acquisition of Tappan by another company, I assure you that if I am elected, I'll inform would-be suitors that at least one member of the board, him, does not share management's views with respect to acquisition of Tappan by another company. And I will attempt to see, I will attempt to see to it that shareholders are made aware of any indications of interest or actual offers to acquire the company. And then Icon finishes off by asking shareholders to vote for him on the proxy card. What happens next? So Icon, you know, uses some uh, old school tactics. He picks up the phone, starts calling up shareholders, starts from the top of the list of concentration and shares and goes to the bottom. Uh, he ends up making a case to every single shareholder. I think it wasn't just him. It was uh, also his secretary um, and his analyst. They're all uh, working the phone, speaking to shareholders and convincing them of the case that he should win a seat. And he ends up winning it. So he has a seat. But what do you think happens when Icon comes into the boardroom and he wants to sell the company and all the board members are like, what are you, what are you talking about? We're not selling this company. It's been paying us very handsomely for the last couple of years. Uh, so, so, so like his first board meeting, right? I kind of, he's pressing for the, the sale of the company and he starts by a little chunk. So there's a subsidiary of, of Tappan called Tappan Gurney, um, which has been losing money year in, year out. It's a Canadian subsidiary, uh, but it did own very valuable real estate in downtown Montreal. So Icon's pitch was like, you guys are a manufacturing company. You manufacture stoves. What are you doing owning all this real estate? Like return this capital to shareholders. So he says, liquidate the subsidiary and turn the property into cash. And in a similar vein, Icon noted that Tappan's Anaheim, California plant was a big employer of Mexican factory workers. So he's like, well, if you're already employing Mexican factory workers, why is the factory in California? You should move the factory to Mexico, right? You'll get the cheap labor and you'll get cheap release. Um, so he called for selling the property in California as well. So we're already seeing a strategic icon, you know, turn into a higher gear. A nuts and bolts guy. He comes in, he learns quickly, right. quick study. He looks at the, the balance sheet. He sees that there's this uh, big book value number of, of real estate. And he's like, well, who owns this company? I do. So if I were to own this company, which he does a portion of it, um, would you rather your cash sitting in real estate or would you rather the cash sitting in other stocks that you can pick well? And the answer is other stocks. So why is this company holding my cash? Right. That's basically the way he views it as the owner of the business. And management is basically in his way of being the most efficient with his capital. That's the way he views it. So he wants to liquidate these uh, two facilities. But even though he's making these incremental changes, I mean, the board's still stacked against him. Yeah. So so as as he's like talking about these changes to the board, the board is like not seeing any of it. At the end of the day, it's, he just has one board seat at this point. 
and there are, I think, nine other board members, so he's just 10% of the board, he can't really effectuate any of these changes, even though they might be good ideas, uh, financially speaking, for the company. Uh, and so let's just try to understand. So he got onto the board uh, in April. Uh, that's when the shareholder meeting was. And now we're already in July, August of 1979. Um, and at this point, Icon is still trying to get a few buyers in line. Um, so he mentions to the board, he mentions to Blasius that he's working with a few buyers. He's kind of trying to keep them on their toes. Um, he's also threatening that if they don't effectuate any changes, he might run for a second board seat. And at this point, management is starting to take him a lot more seriously because it's not just threats. At this point, he owns a good portion of the stock, um, a few hundred thousand shares, and he already got one board seat. It's not that unlikely for uh, him to be getting a second board seat, especially if they don't uh, compromise on any of the asks uh, that he's asking for. And so Icon slowly convinces management that either he'll sell the company to a firm doing an LBO or that they need to find a white knight, right? So he, he somehow convinces them that he found this investment firm, I guess uh, you could call it uh, private equity that's dealing with public companies. That they'll borrow a lot of money and take this company private and uh, it'll just be a portfolio company. And if they don't want that, because they know that they're going to end up cutting costs and firing them most likely, that they better start looking for another company that is a little bit more friendly that will buy the company and still keep their employment. So he understands Blasius's uh, incentives, right? He understands what drives them as humans. And he is basically speaking to this incentive. Uh, he's, he's seeing in how he can find a favorable way to convince Blasius to work to his own favor. And the way he convinces him is basically through that by saying, you're either going to get fired or find a friendlier owner or friendlier boss. And, you know, you can choose for yourself, but um, you have until the next shareholder meeting or I'm going to get another board seat uh, and I'm going to buy more shares and you might be kicked out sooner. So management remembered um, that at some point, in the last couple of years, they had a joint venture or they were actually in talks of a joint venture with a company called AB Electrolux. Um, and this... I, I love how management remembered. Yeah. Somehow they bring it out of their back pocket that, oh, this company AB Electrolux exists, <laughs> even though for the last two years, you know, never existed. Like Icon was trying to sell this company before. He's been telling management the entire time and they didn't bring it up until now when they realized that things are really getting serious and heated. They get put in the hot seat and they're like, okay, we, we, we might know a better boss than Mr. Icon. So they fly out to, I think, uh, Sweden and um, they start working with uh, AB Electrolux and seeing if they could form some kind of a deal. And the joint venture that they were going to do before was they wanted to enter the recreational uh, vehicle market with AB Electrolux. And AB Electrolux would make the refrigerators and Tappan would basically make the ovens and the, the ranges um, for the recreational vehicles. And so they thought that maybe it would make sense for AB Electrolux not to just partner with them, but maybe outright acquire them and do this joint venture in a more robust manner. So they offered it to AB Electrolux 
And guess what? Electrolux makes an offer, $18 per share. Um, we know that Icon um, bought the stock. I think the average share price was uh, $8.39. And uh, he made a $2.7 million profit on 321,500 shares. Uh, the cost basis of $8.39, sold it for $18 per share. And this deal made so much sense to Dick Tappen, who's the president of Tappen, and I think the son or the grandson of the founder, that he actually, at the table when they were closing this deal, he turns to Icon and he's like, wow, can you include me in, in the next deal? Like, you really did really well for shareholders. You know, they went from an $8 stock to an $18 stock in you know, within 18 months, you're onto something. And he knew that Icon was going to do this to another company, um, similarly to how he did it at Baird and Warner, the the REIT, right before. Uh, he also knew that he wasn't the only one out there, you know, pulling the the management spiel. You know, just living for themselves and not really recognizing shareholders. He knew he wasn't the only one. Yeah, because he was he was on that side of the of the game, right? He was on the side of. We're living off the corporate fat, and he knows that there's a lot of corporate fat to be cut. And if you can cut that fat and uh, do so successfully, fight management, convince shareholders, then there's another buck to be had for the activist. And in this case, Icon is the activist. So he gives Icon $100,000, and I don't think he keeps it in there for too long, but he does make a great return. And I think uh, when they were interviewing him for the book, he said that he regrets that he didn't leave money with Icon for longer because it could have compounded uh, at a pretty insane rate. I think it was over 20% um, for the first 25 years. Coming from an operations business, that's pretty big, you know? And he's looking at Icon as the real guy out there. Yeah, and I, I think this deal for Icon is a very important deal and it's really pivotal in his career, right? Because before this, he has one other deal, which is where he got some of his capital from. Um, but until now, really, he's been an options broker. He had his own brokerage firm. He didn't really uh, put any money on the table, right? A lot of that is, is transactional. He's making money by selling people ideas and, and taking a little fee. Um, this is very different. Here, the stock actually has to move up for him to make any money. And Inherently, there's a lot more risk there, but he proved to himself that his hypothesis of if he effectuates change, if he's that catalyst that, you know, calls management, calls shareholder, and points his finger to the fact that the, the market value is 50% below the book value, and that book value is great real estate that he can easily liquidate, um, then heads he wins and tails he doesn't lose much because he can liquidate the company. And... This hypothesis proves true in some of his future deals. Um, and I think that there are a lot of companies, especially in the micro cap and small cap arena, where management is not being the most efficient and analysts aren't necessarily following these companies. So there are opportunities to be had, I think, to this day. The problem is that you don't have the big activist firms going after these companies simply because you could only allocate like, you know, two, three, five million into these deals and the amount of effort, if you think about it, that Icon put in to this, two, almost two years, 
Um, and yeah, he made you know two point seven million. Some of that was his partners. It wasn't all of his own capital. You know, he probably had some attorney fees. Um, but I think he was pretty bootstrapped in terms of calling shareholders, and he probably didn't pay too much to proxy solicitors since he was the one soliciting, you know, the votes. But it's a lot of his time. Think about all the time that he spent calling potential acquirers and taking them out to lunch and visiting management and. You know, all of that time is time away from making money in other ventures. Um, so he kind of had a gut feeling here. Um, and he kind of followed his gut for almost two years. It proved successful. And he went on to follow his gut on some other deals. Uh, some of them worked out. Some of them didn't. But I think this case really proved to him that there was something here. And in other cases in the future, if it doesn't work out, it might be just circumstantial, but that this approach to creating value in stocks is is a valid one and that it has precedent and that he knows how to effectuate it. I think that's the, the biggest lesson learned here for Icon. 100%. This was the first dance of many for him.